0: I'm slowing this down. If you see me coming through, then just know it's about to get loud. Okay, I've been up for like four days. Paranoia, man, I can't think straight. My mind's gone in another place. But it's not how you start saying you finish the race. Say
1: what coming at you from the Weed Desert Studio in Houston, Houston, Texas. You're listening to the Weekly Brew with Austin Staten, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. I can't quit.
0: welcome to episode 55 of the weekly group podcast my name is austin Staton. and we're joined this week by kevin cook jeremy paxton and Dolores cesano have the week off and uh, they have the week off because we are actually recording on a friday night rather than our typical sunday morning uh, and the reason for that is i'm actually going to be uh, gone this weekend but uh, kevin there is a lot going on this week uh, and friday night as we are recording we've got the olympic opening ceremony taking place and uh, it's been quite an interesting week in rio de janeiro
1: yeah i will say and- First of all, if you had the impression that we had nothing better to do uh, on a typical Friday or Saturday night than record a podcast... It turns out you were absolutely right. That is exactly the sort of thing we do in the way we spend our time. But uh, yeah, I've been following the Olympics. Obviously, there's been a lot of negative coverage of the security concerns. Uh, crime has been an issue. The Onion has had uh, some great delight dealing with that issue. And there's been some really creative stories. Uh, a Chinese hurdler was vomited on as part of a part of a scam to steal photographic equipment. Australian, part of the Australian national team, had their laptop stolen when someone set a garbage fire outside of their dormitory. So there, uh, really, you've gathered. The best in the world together. Not just athletes, but also criminals. Uh, people plying their craft at the highest possible levels there in Rio. And it is, um, it, no one's been hurt yet, thankfully. It, it's people having stuff stolen, which is sad, but it's also kind of amusing to watch. Yeah,
0: and actually, Friday afternoon, there was a tweet that went out saying that uh, a kayaker was, I guess, practicing in the uh, the area that's, that his competition was going to take place, and actually capsized uh, the kayak. And, and do you know why that's the case?
1: Well, what I have read indicates that it ran up on uh, a Submerged Sofa, which took me by surprise. I wouldn't think that that would be an item that you would run across. Uh, I would have said body, honestly, if if you'd give me a guess at it, but no, it was was a sofa.
0: Yeah, definitely interesting to see uh, that happen, and it kind of makes you wonder what else is going to transpire, but again, the opening ceremony for the Rio 2016 uh, Olympic Games taking place on Friday night, so by the time you're listening to this podcast on Monday, or whatever day you decide to listen, the opening ceremony will have already concluded, Uh, but for those that aren't familiar, I'm actually going to be heading down to Rio de Janeiro on August 31st for the Paralympics. And so, Kevin, you had alluded to the crime, and, and I'm interested to see uh, when I get down to Rio uh, next month, uh, how things have, you know, to see if things have gotten a little bit better and to see if security has been more under control. But but Kevin, in, in past years, there has been a lot of negativity surrounding uh, the lead up to the Games. I think of Sochi, uh, there, was, there were concerns with uh, Chechen rebels, there were concerns with hotels not being ready in time. Uh, but it... Do you think that some of these, I don't know, concerns are a little exaggerated when it gets to the games time. I mean, typically the games go off without a hitch.
1: Well, I mean, but there are things happening to the athletes outside of the games themselves, so while the athletic competitions might go off without a hitch, or might not, judging by the uh, furniture that we're running across (laughs) and kayaking runs and things like that, uh, I mean, there's a very real chance in this Olympics that it may impact the actual games themselves, but it's impacting the lives of the athletes outside of the games, and that's also uh, worth noting, I think. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed on on the Ringer website, I'm trying to figure out who it was that wrote it, someone wrote that the Olympics should be in in the same place, it was Claire McNair wrote that the Olympics should be in the same place every year, which I thought was a really interesting idea. Pick some sort of locale, uh, you have all the infrastructure there, you don't deplete the country's resources, go over a budget, have these concerns of crime and so forth. You basically have a dedicated Olympic city
0: where it takes place every four years and uh, I don't know, what do you think of that idea? I think it's a fascinating idea but there is so much of an economic and resource drain on the countries that are hosting and, and really I think of uh, Brazil for example, when they were awarded the Games in 2009, uh, they were one one of the top five global economies, and obviously they've been hit hard by the recession, political corruption, economic turmoil. Uh, so I think there are very few countries that would actually step up to the plate. Obviously, I think the United States has the capability to host an Olympic or, uh, you know, a major sporting event every four years. Uh, the problem is, is I, I don't know that the International Olympic Committee would go for that. And and it's it's kind of sad because I think the International Olympic Committee wanted to bring the games to uh, the Southern Hemisphere, wanted to bring the games to uh, South America, which they've never Hosted the games before, Uh, but unfortunately, it looks like uh, they are going to go for more first-world countries, or unfortunately, countries like China, which Beijing is hosting uh, the Winter Olympics coming up in, I you know, in just a few years. And I I think there are only a few countries that would actually want to step up to the plate. And I think those are going to be your countries like Russia, China. And then maybe the United States, but it's definitely going to be interesting to see uh, how the future of the Olympics games, I guess, takes center stage following the Rio games. But uh, before we dive into anything else, real quick, I want to give our listeners a heads up that we have two great interviews on this podcast today. We've got Vincent Harris from Harris Media. Uh, he's essentially the father of the uh, digital media age of the Republican Party. We've got a great interview in store with him, uh, kind of reflecting on the RNC and the DNC and how social media and digital media in general, not only impacted this presidential election here in the United States, but global political races. Uh, Vincent also worked on the Benjamin Netanyahu re-election campaign in Israel, but also we've got a uh, great interview in store with Cole Wallach, who is the, uh, I guess, producer, DJ, rapper, whatever you want to call it, for Capital Kings and uh, phenomenal music. And uh, we definitely enjoy that interview. But Kevin, one other big story that happened this week is the uh, USA Today Amway coaches poll came out and college football is just a few weeks away. Obviously, the big game that our listeners are concerned about is that opening game with Oklahoma and Houston. Again, Oklahoma ranked number three in the preseason poll and uh, your University of Houston Cougars check in at number 13.
1: And it's a proud moment. Uh, first time in 25 years. Since 1991, they were ranked tw- 12th going into the season uh, in the AP poll, uh, this season ranked number 13. So it's been a while since we've had this kind of preseason buzz. It feels good to hear people talking about the University of Houston. Um, I'm one of those people that thinks they're not talking enough, particularly with a guy like Greg Ward, who is a a, a legitimate Heisman candidate. Obviously, Tom Herman's a big name. You hear his name all the time, uh, often disconcertingly in terms of maybe going somewhere else. But uh, but yeah, so a lot of preseason hype. I don't make much of the polls Um, in terms of Oklahoma being at three, Houston being at 13. It's going to be a good game. It is going to be the marquee game of that opening week of the season. The Advocare Texas kickoff. I'll be there covering it. I'm excited to uh, to go. And uh, I can't really root, of course, being a professional. But in my heart, I will be pulling for Houston. And, I mean, I think – I think their chances are good. I
0: don't know. I'd say it's a lock by any measure, but uh, but it's going to be a competitive game, I think. I agree, and it, it's kind of interesting to me. When the game was scheduled a few years ago, I think a lot of people looked at it as Oklahoma's opportunity to come recruit in a, a fertile recruiting ground that is Houston, and uh, I don't think that many people anticipated having two Heisman candidate quarterbacks, uh, two top 15 teams in this game, but I'm definitely looking forward to that game here in the uh, Labor Day weekend. But kind of going down the list real quick of the top five teams, you've got Alabama ranked number one. They received 55 first place votes. Clemson, who lost to Alabama in the national championship game, returning another Heisman caliber quarterback to rank number two. Oklahoma, again, at three. Florida State, four. Ohio State, five. And uh, some other teams of note, just for our listeners, U of H, obviously checking in at 13. Gary Patterson and his Texas Christian University Horned Frogs check in at number 14. Again, we had Coach Patterson on the podcast just a few episodes ago. Other teams of note, Oklahoma State in the Big 12, ranked number 19. And my Baylor Bay. Bears check in at number 21 and and Kevin just kind of looking at that poll are there any teams that kind of I don't know seem overrated or underrated to you well uh, the thing to notice there is that
1: Houston would be according to that poll the number one team in Texas, which is a proud moment for Cougars, and uh, you know it's nice to be among those top teams in Texas. Certainly, um, I, I'm guessing that you have an opinion.
0: Yeah, so I think uh, you know, just looking at a broader perspective, I see Oklahoma. Uh, I, I see Alabama at number one, and I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about their quarterback situation. But as Coach Saban has pr- proven throughout the years, it doesn't take a good quarterback to win a national championship. Uh, Alabama and the Crimson Tide do it through a, a staunch defense, and so that's I, I think why they're ranked number one in the country. Uh, they don't rebuild. They actually reload. But a team that I think might be a little bit underrated is actually LSU. Of course, Les Miles was on the hot seat this past year, but they've got arguably the best running back in the country and Leonard Fournette leading that team. So they're checking at number six. But I think that uh, one of the four playoff teams is going to be either Alabama or LSU, and it's going to come down to that game uh, it, that essentially is going to decide the SEC West. But a team that I think might be ranked a little bit too high and is getting a little bit too much uh, pub early on in the season would be Tennessee at number 10. Again, a Last year, they went nine and four. They actually received a first place vote in the USA Today coaches poll. And uh, I'm, you know, they've got a lot of talent, but I'm not sure that their track record has really justified that number 10 ranking and kind of looking at my Baylor Bears at number 21. Obviously, they had a lot of uh, turmoil in the offseason with coach Art Briles getting fired. They're down to 70 scholarship players right now. I think they have top five, top 10 talent. And, you know, if nothing would have happened in the offseason, I think they would probably fall somewhere in that ranking, but they lack depth right now. And actually Bovada this past week, I guess, released their over under projections for win totals and Baylor checked in at 9.5. And I'm just not sure that I see that right now. I see Baylor winning anywhere between seven and eight games. I really see depth being an issue for the Bears. And if you'll permit me to out you,
1: uh, a conversation we had off air, you are, of course, traveling to Vegas this weekend where it is legal and even encouraged uh, to wager on sports outcomes. And you will actually have the opportunity to put some money down. And uh, it seemed like you were leaning hard. Uh, towards betting against your own team, your
0: alma mater, because that 9.5 over-under is an absurd It really is. And I just don't know if I have the heart to bet against my alma mater, but some interesting other over-under win totals from Bovada. Uh, Baylor at 9.5, Houston at 9.5, OU at 10, Oklahoma State at 8.5, SMU coach Chad Morris in his second year, their projected win. uh, The over-under is set at six wins. Uh, TCU and Gary Patterson's squad at 8.5. Texas and Texas A&M check it at eight and then uh, Cliff Kingsbury and Texas Tech at six and a half. So we're just a few weeks away from college football season and I couldn't be more excited. And speaking of excitement, uh, I get excited by knowing that Wee Desserts ranks in as the number one bakery here in Houston, Texas.
1: That's right. Uh, in the Mway Eaters poll. uh just doesn't exist. It's a fake thing I'm making up. But uh, they were ranked number one uh, in our hearts and in our minds. We are our sponsor at 3411Kirby. Uh, basically anything you could possibly desire. If you like things that are sweet of any kind, they have it there. And they're constantly coming out with new and innovative desserts. So for someone who is uh, admittedly and avowedly you know, a big fat hog, I eat a lot uh, and I can't help myself and I don't want to help myself, I certainly enjoy desserts and I know them. And they have the best desserts in the city there at We. Uh, this week they're debuting a warm pecan Pie with vanilla ice cream and cinnamon sugar pecans, which just as I say it, I'm just there's spit saliva all <laughs> over the microphone, which isn't an appetizing thought, but eating that certainly is. So drop by Wee Desserts. Uh, Penny and Jen are the proprietors there. They're lovely human beings, uh, unless uh, you know you're just a horrible person, and they'll still be nice to you. That's that's really the great thing about there is good customer service. So drop by Wee Desserts. Tell them that the guy's the Weekly Brew since you buy. Get some of that warm pecan pie with vanilla ice cream, and uh, you'll get 10 percent off your order if you tell them you know us and you're with us. And if you listen. To the podcast you are with
0: us absolutely and in addition to we deserts we want to make sure that you follow our social media pages just search weekly brewcast on facebook twitter instagram and youtube you can also follow our website at weeklybrewcast.com we post all the content there each monday and uh, it gets pushed straight to your inbox but uh kevin we've got a great show on deck we've got uh great interviews with vincent harris again of harris media and then cole from Capital kings and Capital kings will actually be performing here in h-town at the end of the month and i couldn't be more excited about today's show.
1: Well, and I will say that uh, you uh, you tend to to be a little right-leaning politically. I obviously am very left-leaning, and I'm very open about that. But uh, if you happen to be like me, not a Republican, not a conservative type, I still think the Vincent Harris stuff is really interesting. We had a very reasonable discourse and dialogue about the nature of politics in this country, and particularly how social media impacts the way we discuss and uh, perceive politics. So even if you're not uh, somebody who's a Republican at heart, I think it's a conversation worth listening to, and I certainly encourage you to stick around for it. Absolutely. And without further ado,
0: we've Got a packed show on deck, so it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to the Weekly Brew. Joining us now on the Weekly Brew is Vincent Harris, the founder and and CEO of Harris Media. And uh, Vincent has been called by Bloomberg as the man who invented the Republican internet. And New York Times Magazine said that he was, quote, a savvy digital whiz. And uh, Vincent, uh, one of the things that we wanted to bring you on this week was to kind of discuss social media and how the impact it's had uh, with the presidential campaigns. And, you know, when I look back to 2008, I see that, you know, the Democrats and President Barack Obama kind of embraced the internet and how much. It I guess the importance that it had when it came to presidential elections and the Republican Party was sort of behind the eight ball and your uh, firm, Harris Media, actually specializes in, I guess, content creation and digital media. Uh, For those that aren't, you know, exactly familiar of what your day to day role is, can you kind of give us an overview of what that looks like and how your company uh, helps the Republican Party or candidates not only in the Republican Party, but also on a global platform?
2: Sure. Yeah. And thanks for having me on. Uh, So our company is hired by campaigns and causes and political organizations and businesses to facilitate essentially every type of communication from a digital perspective. So take Ted Cruz's Senate race in 2012. We ran all of his digital operations. And when he brought us on, we assisted with everything from branding. So what, what was his bumper sticker going to look like from you know then online fundraising? Senator Cruz raised $3 million online in 2012 to managing his emails that he would send out and the graphics in the emails to designing and building his campaign website to running his social media, Facebook, Twitter, etc. to creating web videos, which, which uh, we actually had some really fun ones back in the 2012 race to, um, you know, uh, running his his text message program. I mean, really it is anything that a traditional TV firm wouldn't do or a direct mail firm. And how Republican politics has traditionally worked is people grow in, in a, a profession of either direct mail or general consulting or creating television ads, and then there was this new thing, maybe now three or four cycles ago, uh, with digital. And now we have digital being added as a seat to the table and another voice. So consultants choose one of those voter contact methods as their bread and butter. And then they try to add things to them, uh, you know, to the campaigns, but everybody works together and then tries to fight over the, the campaign, high. That's how that that all works.
0: So Vincent, speaking of digital media, uh, one thing we talk about here on the podcast is uh, how social media is changing the world around us. And I'd like to know, uh, how is social media changing campaigns? You know, we sort of, uh, as Austin stated, Barack Obama used social media to a great effect in 2008 and 2012. How do you think it's changed campaigns in this election cycle?
2: Well, look, I mean, I think that digital media is, uh, I mean, it is the best most targeted way to reach voters nowadays i mean take take a new york city media market when when i was working for linda mcmahon who's the owner of of world wrestling you might know her husband vince but she's the she's uh the uh brains behind that operation uh as well as uh vince well when she ran for senate in connecticut she had to advertise Um, On the New York media market because it represents half of all voters in Connecticut She spent about 25 million dollars, I believe on TV in the New York media market But only one in ten dollars actually reached a voter in Connecticut Because the rest reached people in New York City and New Jersey So if you think about it, about 20 million dollars was spent on television ads That were reaching voters who could never even vote in the Connecticut Senate race And what digital has done and what social media has done is it's allowed for this hyper-targeting of advertising where now you can actually target people on one side of the street to the other side of the street. You can target people by their email address. You can target people by their home address through Facebook, through Twitter. You can target people who download certain applications. You can target people who were tweeting about the speech who live in Philadelphia during conventions. You can target people based on their devices. You can target people down within the three-yard radius of the convention. So digital media has become so sophisticated and it has really changed how campaigns are spending money because now they don't have to waste money a, you know, or nearly as much money on television. But I would also say that digital media has changed fundamentally you know, the, the, the power structure going back to the 2012 center race. I remember when I first moved to Texas from Virginia, people would say, if you want rich, you can't win statewide in Texas. Well, Ted Cruz raised $3 million online to compete with David Dewhurst. Well, Bernie Sanders raised millions and millions and millions online to compete with the decades old political infrastructure of secretary Clinton. Bernie Sanders is a digital candidate. He's a social candidate. And without the Internet, I do not think he could have gotten to where he ended up with 47% of the uh, vote.
1: I don't think there's any question that digital media is a good tool for campaigns in terms of rallying the troops, uh, fundraising, getting support out, and so forth. But in terms of the social discourse, I'm curious, uh, it seems like we are as polarized or more polarized than we've ever been before. Do you think that um, the ability uh, uh, to be able to tweet at uh, directly at people and to be able to voice your opinion so uh, and broadcast it, do you think that has an effect on how um, divisive the, the latest political cycle has become for people?
2: Oh, yeah, look, absolutely. There's a um, I'm in uh, graduate school at the University of Texas, and what I studied is a is that you asked about, polarization online. And one of my professors, uh, her name is Natalie, she wrote a wonderful book called Niche News. And Niche News talks a lot about selective exposure, the political science term that you're talking about, where people online are choosing to and hang out with friends online on on social media that reinforce their pre-existing views. I'm a conservative, where do I go Breitbart? I go to Drudge Report, I go to Fox News. Every conservative that I know goes to those same things. Every liberal I know goes to Slate and MSNBC and the Huffington Post, and their friends are all liberal and they hide everyone on Facebook. I can tell you, I just became friends with a guy the other day from my Bible study and um, now that I'm thinking about this on the podcast, I don't know that I should say this, but um, he he started posting a bunch of liberal things. So what did I do? I hit him because I didn't want to see all that in my feed. I prefer because it's more comfortable to see conservative and fellow conservative commentary. So absolutely, I think that the Internet and, and there's been a lot of research on this has probably helped exacerbate the issue of polarization. And this concept of selective exposure has driven people away from the facts because now online there is no truth. I can go online and and find anything, any set of data to reinforce my views. And the internet has, has given everybody that ability.
1: Is that a problem with the solution? I mean, I think that everybody would agree that polarization is a problem. You have tension uh, against people that ought to be working together, which you you have all the way from the congressional level to the personal level. Um, And I have similar, but I'm I'm fairly liberal myself and I try to engage with conservatives as much as I can. It often infuriates me. Is that the solution to it, that people need to stop hiding uh, from the opinions they disagree with and actually engage in some sort of discourse?
2: I think that, that that sharing of facts and sharing of opinions across social media is 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 very healthy. And the other term that fights with the term selective exposure is the one incidental exposure, where we are sitting on Facebook newsfeed and we're incidentally exposed to news we wouldn't get from Fox News from one of our liberal friends or somebody with a different opinion. That's obviously beneficial, and I think it's beneficial to our culture and our society and politics when we encounter someone's different opinion. But here's what truly happens when we see that. When we see that other opinion, do we actually read it and does it sink in? Or do we go to Breitbart and George Report and look online for our opinion's facts to back up what we say and then go and comment back? Because I think the second thing that I said there is what normally happens. I see someone comment and say something liberal or something atheist or whatever that it is, and I go onto Google and I search for facts and opinion and quotes and articles and videos that, that reinforce my view and then comment without really reading and 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 fully thinking about what that person said.
0: Kind of switching gears here for a moment. Uh, you know, we just wrapped up the RNC and the DNC. And and for me personally, I, I am a registered Republican. I'm not a huge fan of Donald Trump. And I, I've stated several times on this podcast that I can't find myself voting for him in November. And, you know, I'm actually considering a third party or potentially writing in Paul Ryan. But at the same time, I not a fan of Hillary Clinton and her policy and uh, what she's done in her track record. I'm kind of curious from your perspective now that we are reflecting on both the RNC and the DNC, what is your takeaway from those two conventions and how do you see those two conventions kind of impacting uh, the lead up to the November election?
2: Full disclosure, I um, I spent a year and a half working for Senator Rand Paul, who is one of the 16 that Mr. Trump always refers to that he bested. So. My chosen candidate in this election cycle was Senator Rand Paul. I actually left working for Senator Cruz to work for Senator Paul because I believe that a convention would have looked completely different and would have been a very inclusive, more young millennial, you know, uh, libertarian-leaning type convention. But we got, uh, you know, we we uh, lost and Mr. Trump won. And I think when you look at those two conventions. Uh I see, you know, I was actually pretty surprised because I think the Democratic convention was a lot more in disarray. I mean, there were Bernie supporters much more angry than I think some of the beaten Republican supporters who I don't think just just didn't even go to Cleveland from Senator Cruz and from Rand Paul and from Jeb Bush and Rubio on and on and on. Those people, I think, just didn't want to mount a, a huge offense. There's obviously some going on with Senator Cruz in Cleveland and Ken Cuccinelli and, and people being upset. But overall, Bernie Sanders' people caused a lot more strife for Hillary Clinton than anyone in Cleveland. And, you know, I certainly understand your opinion on voting third, third party. I've got some friends and family who are all doing that. But at the end of the day, this comes down, I think, to this election comes down to an election about security. And for me personally, the reason I will be casting my vote for Donald Trump is because of security and terrorism issues. And Secretary Clinton has done nothing to help fix, I believe, our country from a security perspective. And she's been a part of an administration that has caused this current chaos in the world. So I think that Mr. Trump is going to naturally be able to to run a campaign on every issue he's been talking about the whole time. When he announced, he's been talking about border and security and terrorism. These are issues that Hillary Clinton just cannot compete with him on. So I think when you look at the overarching themes of the conventions, Mr. Trump did a very good job of reinforcing security outsider, and Secretary Clinton did a pretty good job of just reinforcing that That minus a few players. That convention could have been run back in 1992 with her husband and in political class—it's the same insiders. And by the way, there was a there was a wonderful video that came out yesterday from the Republican Jewish Coalition, which actually talked about how what I just said isn't correct, saying that back in 1992, people at the Democratic Convention wouldn't be burning Israeli flags, bringing Palestinian flags inside of the convention, chanting for the. Uh, intifada which was going on inside and outside of the democratic convention so hillary in in some ways is a is a last vestige of the old democratic party of her husband's democratic party but the party has moved a lot more towards bernie sanders
0: I kind of find that interesting. I did see that video uh, that you had just mentioned, and uh, we'll get into that in just a second also with your work with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. But uh, when I look at foreign policy, that, that's one of the things that I vote on. I, I've told everyone on this podcast that I, I look for foreign policy, economy, and then also energy. Those are the three big issues that I'm concerned about. But when I look at Donald Trump, I, I see a bunch of rhetoric telling us how bad America is right now and how you know much of a threat we are from foreign aggression from organizations like ISIS and uh, you know Boko Haram and all these different terrorist organizations throughout the world but the problem that i have with mr trump is that he doesn't actually give us a solution Uh, to mitigating any of these risks. And, you know, I I think it was two weeks ago he told the New York Times that uh, his stance on NATO essentially was, you know, they have to pay to play. We're not necessarily going to follow through with our commitment to that organization. So I'm curious from your perspective, how does what policies, I guess, have you seen from Donald Trump that actually make you believe that he is going to make America safe again?
2: So I think that the wonderful and what I would say is the past predicts
0: the future, and that,
2: I mean, as someone who's worked in politics for 15 years, there is a lot of rhetoric, and people say a lot of things to win an election, and they go and they poll test what they should say and what policies they should release. And Mr. Trump isn't doing any of that. He's not poll testing policies and spilling them out there like Hillary Clinton is. But if you look at, at, at his record as a businessman, and, and I truly mean this, that about six months ago I read his book, The Art of the Deal, and there was a wonderful few chapters in there about the Woolman Rink, which if you go to Central Park, I had no clue about what he did to actually put that ice skating rink in Central Park. And I re-read, I have reread those chapters two or three times since, and it is things like that where there was this bureaucratic system and red tape Trying and 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 years and years of inaction to get this ice skating rink in Central Park. And Donald Trump came and he fixed it and he got that ice skating rink open by cutting costs and by cutting bureaucracy and blah 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 blah. And all that is discussed in his book. That's the kind of thing that I appreciate about Mr. Trump. And when I when I look at him, you know, I was just in Vegas a couple weeks ago. You you can't argue that he has. Big buildings and and with his name on it, he is a builder. I mean, he he knows how to be a businessman and how to make money. And I, as somebody who appreciates the 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 you know place of the economy in in our politics versus some of these social issues that I think can sometimes distract people, um, I think that Donald Trump is absolutely the best candidate. Uh, and does he have every maybe you know, foreign policy issue worked out now? Has he released his detailed plans as Hillary, as Hillary Clinton? No, but Barack Obama released a bunch of plans, and Hillary you – know, her, her team's released plans. We've ended up with Benghazi and deleted emails and a and, 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 and bunch of, of further attacks. And I would also say that the one policy that he's continuously pushed for is the border wall. And the border wall is a policy in itself. And when we look at Israel, for example, you know, people that critique the border wall, I lived in Israel for three months. I've been back to Israel multiple times over the past couple years. Every study in Israel shows that the walls in Israel actually do prevent crossing and that the walls in Israel do prevent trafficking and the walls in Israel do make things safer. So people that say that a wall won't make things safer here in my home state of Texas now I think are very naive, and we should look to Israel as our example.
1: One fact I think is interesting is the uh, millennials uh, surpassing or, or equaling baby boomers as a portion of the electorate, which uh, just happened very recently. And uh, you talk about inclusivity. and I, I perceive inclusivity as a value that millennials in particular care about. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. But, uh, w- you know, with them taking over the, the largest share of the electorate by plurality, uh, do you think that the candidates are doing what they need to do in order to mobilize that vote in order to get them to actually get out uh, to the voting centers and, and, and make their voices heard?
2: So, no. I mean, I think that Hillary Clinton's going to do a lot more of that than Mr. Trump. And in every poll that's come out, Donald Trump does better with people the older that the demographic is, right? So even though millennials are are able to vote in total number as many as baby boomers, they're not going to vote in as many numbers. So you can win mathematically by losing millennials but by winning baby boomers and 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 the older generation so um i think that both campaigns are trying a little bit and you see mr trump putting ivanka trump out front um with 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 a lot of of her influence in the campaign she had a wonderful speech at the convention if you look at some of the things going on on social media donald trump's He had this really funny, uh, I know that that your podcast talked about Pokemon Go a few podcasts ago. Well, Donald Trump released a a, a very funny Pokemon Go video on Facebook that I think was, was one of his most shared pieces of social media content ever a couple weeks ago. And it is that kind of content, it's that pop culture content that campaigns need to actually release if they want to reach millennials. Because... Millennials are very savvy when it comes to their media content choices, and they'll just turn off something if it's a normal, boring political ad. And that's what Mr. Trump understands, is this is about narrative and this is about controlling the media. And that's why he was so genius again this week when during the Democratic Convention he said the, he said what he said about Russia hacking Hillary Clinton's emails and, and, and asking where those emails were. He took control of the media narrative again. And at the end of the day... We live in a country where most voters aren't listening to this podcast or watching Fox News or watching MSNBC or even reading the Washington Post, right? Most voters are going to be lower information voters who are going to make more decisions on, on you know, broader thematic than they are on intense fact and intense policy position. And I think that Mr. Trump is the first, candidate truly soundbite candidate who understands digital media everything he says is a soundbite everything he says gets google search spiked to high heaven everything that everything he says people want to share like when he did that tweet on Cinco de Mayo with him in front of the taco bowl yeah you know people had a bunch of different opinions about that but at the end of the day we we were all talking about it. And that's what he gets. That's why his campaign was, was was outspent, whatever it was, 50 to 1 by Jeb Bush. And he crushed Jeb Bush into the ground because Jeb Bush's campaign wasn't the campaign everyone was talking about. People were responding to Donald Trump. And by the way, I think some of this is psychology 101, where Donald Trump is saying I'm a winner. And guess what people believe when people say they're a winner? And he keeps repeating again and again, I'm a winner, I'm a winner, I'm a winner, I'm going to win. Well, at some point, people believe that and people want to support who they think is going to win. So I actually find him you know, genius with marketing. I find him genius with the, with the way that he's run this entire campaign. We can have discussions about policy position and, and rhetoric and that kind of a thing, but, but he is undoubtedly... Run the smartest campaign, and and he is correct. You just have to look at at at, at uh, votes and the election histories so far to to
1: showcase that.
0: All right, Vincent. Uh, just kind of looking at the post-convention bounce from both candidates, with everything we've talked about in mind. Um, I'm sort of curious who carries their convention bounce uh, into as we get further to the general election. Uh, there's a story on 538 um, that showed that Trump was actually in a better position to win the general at this point.
2: I think that Donald Trump, at the end of the day, had a better convention. I think the best speech I'm going to agree with what what I've seen everyone online though was the speech of Mr. Khan, who was who's the American Muslim man who who uh, spoke with his wife at the last night of the Democratic Convention, whose son died in in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, that, that was a wonderful speech. I've seen some follow-up interviews with him, actually, where he softened rhetoric on the Republican Party, actually. He did an MSNBC interview yesterday where he said he liked Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, and that was pretty interesting. So um, I think that was probably the best speech. Um, I think that the Democratic Party's convention had had a lot of very interesting, pithy one-liners. Jennifer Granholm, the former governor of Michigan, went on before Hillary. She had some wonderful one-liners. My favorite was probably, Mr. Trump, you're so vain, you probably think this speech is about you. That made me laugh for quite a few minutes. But um, I think that we'll see at at the end of this that Donald Trump's, message resonated further and that donald trump's images i mean take his image of walking out like world wrestling with that shadow that (laughs) is awesome that will live in political lore that will live in political lore and i'm not sure that anything that hillary clinton did was was really revolutionary from a marketing perspective again i think it was very traditional and i heard someone on fox news uh, talking yesterday about how patriotic her convention was, I I noticed that too. And, you know, I mean, this was red, white, and blue everywhere. They were trying to out USA, USA. She she mentioned God in her speech more than Mr. Trump did. I mean, at some points, it's just crazy if you look at this cycle, right? It's like, I mean, like, what is really going on here? What what is going on that the Democratic Party is trying to out? outpatriot patriot the Republican Party and is trying to out-Christian the Republican Party, but 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 that's the position that we're in this cycle where Hillary knows that the left is with her, and she's desperate to get those center voters, and that was what she did with her pick of Tim Kaine, my former governor and senator, who's a very nice man. Everyone in Virginia loves Tim Kaine, and with her convention.
0: Definitely uh, fascinating. I think uh, we are in the midst of a historical election, uh, and, and we'll see you know here in just a few months which way everything falls. But uh, Vincent, we definitely appreciate you joining us this week on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And again, for those that aren't familiar, Vincent is the founder and CEO of Harris Media. And uh, as we lead up to the debates and the general election, uh, I guess if you can tell us what your plans are and what is the best way for our listeners to connect with you on social media.
2: Sure, thank you for asking that. So our company URL is harris media com. i'm on twitter at vincent harris h-a-r-r-i-s and um you know we are we are working with three of the biggest senate races right now in the country uh, rob portman in ohio pat toomey in pennsylvania and joe heck in nevada i think that joe heck will probably be the only republican pickup uh, in the United States Senate from what it looks like from recent polls, but Colorado and some of these other states might, might also shake out. So we will be involved there. And then we're also working, uh, some of my favorite work is with a, uh, group called secure American now. And, uh, if you follow them on, on, uh, Facebook, uh, we just did some really fun stuff around the democratic convention where, uh, somebody was dressed up like Hillary Clinton uh, and, and was running around in Philadelphia doing some really funny funny things, uh, dressed up like Hillary Clinton, I should say, in a orange prison jumpsuit. So there was some very funny video from that, and we released a, a 360 video, uh, which, is, uh, which uh, is really awesome, where you can play around of Secretary Clinton as if she was actually spending time in a jail cell. So that's all up <laughs> at Secure America Now dot um org and and we're going to keep pushing out some some really cool fun pop culture content and um you know i i really appreciate you having me on and the the last thing that i'll say if you'll allow me is that going back to senator paul i think that whether it's you know i think that donald trump could very well win this election but i think that our generation that my generation will not keep supporting the Republican Party in the long term if we don't adopt the value system of Senator Rand Paul. Because when I look at who is supporting Senator Paul, it's the people our age, people who just want the government out of their business at all aspects, people that might be socially conservative, but who realize that the country's fundamentally changed and that the way to win, the way to win an election is to not just always talk about hot-button, you know, uh, uh, issues that, that divide people, but to talk about philosophy, and Senator Paul has had the best philosophy in this race, and it, it's a philosophy that I'm sure a lot of your listeners and certainly a lot of millennials, I think, agree with, which is get the government out of my damn business, as, as Senator Paul said. and And I am pretty sure – that in an upcoming election cycle, it's going to be that type of candidate who is going to begin captivating the Republican Party. So I really appreciate you all having me on.
0: Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that last statement with uh, Rand Paul. And uh, I, I, I kind of feel in the same sentiment. And I hope that we do see uh, almost a new Republican Party emerge. But uh, Vincent, it's been a great conversation. and Again, thanks for joining us this week.
1: You're listening to the Weekly Brew.
0: One thing that we thoroughly enjoy on this show is interviewing great musical talents, and our next guest is no exception to that rule. Joining us now on the Weekly Brew podcast is Cole Walowak, who is a producer and rapper for the two piece EDM hip hop pop duo Capital Kings. And uh, Cole, thanks for joining us this week. And at the top of our show, we played your latest single, I Can't Quit, which debuted at the end of July and was accompanied with a visually stunning music video that I've probably watched, I don't know, at least a dozen times so far. And uh, for those that aren't familiar with your sound can you share some insight into the the type of work that goes into mixing and creating new tracks and uh, you know kind of the work that also went into your new single
3: thanks for having me by the way um yeah it's, i mean i do a, a lot of the the music production and i'm involved heavily in all the stuff that gets put out under Capital king so I'll, I'll start with just an idea of the song which is what i did for I can't quit, and it was, uh, I worked on that for, for months, just crafting the song, then uh, recorded all the vocals, worked with a, a mix engineer, I sat in the room and we, we mixed it pretty much together, and once we did that, I knew I wanted to have a music video for it, because I never had a song that was so like heavy and just had so much energy to it, and, uh, and we shot a music video with a company called Evolve out of Nashville, which they're absolutely incredible, um, and yeah, just really heavily involved in it, and uh, I love it.
0: I'm a huge fan of the new singles. If you haven't heard it, I highly recommend uh, that our listeners go and check it out. But uh, Cole, in addition to Capital Kings, some other, I guess, electronic type acts that I like are, you know, the Chainsmokers, smokers, Kygo, seven lions. Uh, you know, I, I think they all have different sounds, which are very similar to Capital Kings. I mean, your sound has evolved from your, you know, your first studio album to your uh, second one, to this new single. I mean, it seems to be constantly growing. Are there any specific bands or DJs that have kind of influenced your career or sounds?
3: Yeah, uh, I'm constantly inspired, man. Uh, If you're a fan of this this style of music, you know how quickly it grows and how people can just come out of nowhere and all of a sudden be on main stage at these huge festivals. So it's like, um, I just love new sounds. And the culture of EDM is just so fun because it's always moving, changing, uh, evolving. So it's just a really cool style of music to to be a part of. And um, yeah, uh, I think some... some some influences and probably like some of the names that you said I'm huge I'm hugely influenced by the Chainsmokers trying to think of who else the first the first person ever like where I I heard something I was like and I had to do that was Skrillex when he put out his first EP and I was like what is this music it's unbelievable (laughs) so (laughs) so that's like really what got me into like trying to make this and forming Capital Kings and all that so Uh, not really, I don't really sound like Skrillex too much, but um, definitely was inspired by him at the beginning.
0: Yeah, but that's what I kind of like about Capital Kings. I mean, you you mix in vocals, which is, I feel like a lot of EDM acts don't really do, and uh, your vocals, your lyrics have meaning uh, behind the words. When you kind of got your start, what was it that drew you to this type of sound?
3: Yeah, like, like I said, it was definitely heavily influenced by the first time I heard EDM music, which was Skrillex, and it was just, like, wild sounds that i had never heard before. It was, like, undeniably cool, like, uh, and uh, I just remember going out and purchasing a MacBook and really diving into, like, production just getting on YouTube and, like, trying to learn how to make sounds and stuff with synthesizers and all that, and, uh, yeah, I've just been doing that ever since I was a teen, you know, like, probably 17 or 18 years old and I'm 25 now, so I feel like and it's funny, I feel like I just, like, recently have started to feel like, man, I feel like I got the hang of this, kind of. So it, yeah. takes, it takes a long, long time to get to that point, like, years of producing and mixing and trial and error and all that. But uh, I feel like recently I've, I've kind of, like, felt proud of the stuff I've been putting out.
0: Yeah, it's been fun to kind of watch your career just develop and uh, I, I think the first song that I heard of y'all was All the Way a few years ago. Actually heading to uh church here, my roommate played it for me. I was like, This is this is awesome. Like I, I absolutely love the track. But uh, you know, Capitol Kings, you you guys have gone through a few changes this year with uh John White uh leaving the d o and uh Dylan Housewright kinda of stepping in. has that impacted your sound or creative direction at at any in any way?
3: Um definitely definitely has made some changes and um, I feel like it's in a a lot better place. Um, just way more creative and, and uh, refreshing and exciting. Um, uh, as far as, yeah, it's definitely going to change the sound a little bit, but not too much because uh, like if you hear the song, I can't quit compared to some of our other stuff, it still feels like capital kings in my opinion, because I, I was doing a lot of the pr- producing. Um And yeah, the only thing that might sound a little different is the voice, but I think, uh, it's not so different to where you're like, Oh, I don't know about this anymore. You know what I mean?
0: For example, acts like Kygo. It seems like EDM. There's is, there's a lot more live acts now. Uh, you know where there's a lot of live mixing, live playing of instruments. And I notice in the new video, I Can't Quit. Uh, there's is you know some live drums being played. Is that kind of a direction or a new dynamic that Dylan kind of brings to the the duo?
3: Yeah, actually, it's like so he just comes alive on stage. and It's just like really cool. He's like awesome drummer. And like if you come. Uh, to show you'll see like we have so many like drums up there and samples that we're hitting or he's hitting and uh, I'll be mixing and stuff and it's just kind of like it just brings another whole dynamic to the live performance which is I think it's awesome.
0: Definitely, just adds a a completely different element to the show. And uh, you know, we are a Houston-based podcast. And a few years ago, uh, the Houston Chronicle wrote that quote: "While there has been little success for crossover electronic pop acts, uh, the one to finally break away from the herd just might be Capital Kings." And uh, with your passion for you know remixing tracks, I mean, I look back at your your SoundCloud page. I believe you have a Justin Bieber's "What Do You Mean" on there. Uh, Then also, you have the uh, what I think is a pretty good uh, all-access radio show. That's Capital Kings All Access. Is there any pressure to be a, a crossover act, or is uh, that something that Capital Kings is striving for?
3: I would love to. I mean, love to, to play uh, Ultra or EDC or all these major festivals. But um, I felt like like God has called us um, to be in this the place that we that we're at now, which is in Christian music. And when we set out not a lot of, has changed as far as the vision. We knew we wanted to be in this industry and, and uh, bring something different that we felt like it really needed. So we, we definitely have dreams to do that. But um, fulfilling like what we feel like we've been called to do first is the most important thing for Capitol King's.
0: Yeah, I, I really like that, that mission from you guys. And, you know, growing up, uh, I think I listened to, uh, you know, Jars of Clay, DC Talk, and of course, Toby Mac, uh, but, you know, for me, I kind of, I had a, a difficult time kind of connecting to, to Christian music just because it was, I don't know, I felt that it was a little bit bland, but you guys definitely bring that new sound, that new energy, you know, kind of relating back to Toby Mac, who I know is, you know, one of your mentors. How have you been able to, I guess, almost reach a new audience with the sounds that you do produce?
3: You know, I think the music has a lot to do it do with it. Like, uh, we definitely when we when we make the songs, we we think about a little bit about like what what were the people like. But at the end of the day, I feel like I don't know. I feel like God has me in this position for a reason. And I try not to do too much thinking. I I just try to make what I feel like I would listen to or I really enjoy. And I think that that's like the most authentic thing about. About making music, I feel like it should be music that you feel like God has breathed into you, and you're passionate about. When you get up on that stage, it just shows that like this is what you were meant to do. So like I try to I try to make music that I really love, and I feel like if you can accomplish that, then I think people will love it too.
0: Absolutely, and I, we actually had a, a fan submitted question. This is from uh, Chase, who's a fan of yours up in Oklahoma, uh, and he asked, uh, "Do you think catering to the church crowd is good for Christianity in general?"
3: Like, I feel like that's a huge thing with Capital Kings. It's, it's like, to, do do I when I get up on the stage, do I say something that's just gonna like that I know that they want to hear, or or do right. I change my set to make it a little bit softer just because there's some Christian folks in the audience and they might not want to hear like straight hardcore banger music um but i feel like like if you really believe in what you're doing um then you, you need to get up there and and say that because you don't know who's in that audience there might be somebody there for the right. first time that that grew up going to raves and you know maybe maybe needed to hear that you know what i mean if I get up there and alter, like, what I was supposed to be doing, then I might not have a chance to impact this person's life and have and bring bring some style of music that, that they really needed to have in their life. Like, they might not get that, you know what I mean? So I, I think you just got to be authentic to who you are, and uh, yeah, I feel like it's really important.
0: Yeah, ultimately, that's the most important thing, is just having that authentic vibe, and I think that uh, you definitely show that on all of your different works, and you definitely express that passion. But, uh, you know, we had mentioned uh, your new single at the top of the show and and uh, top of this interview, but what other new tracks or collaborations or remixes do you have coming down the pipeline right now?
3: I guess I can – I normally don't talk about it until it drops, but I'll just, I'll just tell you because I like you, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate uh, it. <laughs> uh, um, I'm doing one for uh, – do you know Holland? Yeah, yeah. I've heard of her? She's under a Goatee. She's the the newest signed Goaty Act. Um, she put out a new single. It's called Love with Your Life. And uh I just finished that remake and I'm hopefully gonna drop it here soon. I'm just waiting on like the right time. I and I feel like probably in a week or two, but yeah, I did one for her. I got some other new stuff lined up. Um some uh some C K orig- originals and yeah. Uh, I don't know when I'm going to put those out, but yeah, I'm I'm really excited about them.
0: Yeah, I look forward to hearing them. And you you had just mentioned Goatee Records, and how important has that record label been to kind of su- supporting your career, fostering your development, and acting as kind of mentors and uh, you know helping you grow?
3: They've been huge, man. Like they're one of the few labels that really sign acts for who they are, and they don't they don't try to you know like change who you are or morph you into something else and they're just really cool they give me like so much creative control like it's actually unbelievable like they just they just let me like go off and make what i make and then when i turn it in that's how it ends up they don't really like hey you know you should you should cut this section out on you know like how a lot of labels do so i i love being under or on their label it's just like really freeing and I feel like they really got it down. Speaking of,
0: you know, be, having supportive groups, you guys are on tour right now. You're while we're recording this interview, you're actually in Kansas City. But uh, you'll be in Houston on Thursday, August 25th, and uh, both you and Dylan will be uh, traveling throughout the U.S. and the world this fall. And uh, what is it like being on tour? And what type of energy can fans expect from your show?
3: Yeah, it's it's really fun. Like it's definitely why we do what we do. We get to play the music on stage and and just connect with people and have them like just get lost when they come to a show, like they get lost in like the room and, and just the vibe and like, and uh, that we feed off each other. Our show is like so much different than like a normal band because we get up there and we play the music, we, we perform, but it, it's also like the, the crowd is involved too. Like, the harder they go, the more into it they are. The more into it we are on stage. So it's like a, we feed off each other, and it's just really fun when it when it all like lines up. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And my last question for you is also regarding to live performances. I think that a lot of people that aren't familiar with EDM kind of just think that a DJ presses play. But to me, you know, I've been to several shows, and there's so much production uh, when it comes to EDM. The preparation that goes into performing each show, the lights, the uh, you know the different effects, the smoke. How much time do you actually put in to prepare for each show? Because I know the preparation begins hours before you even go on stage.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, even like, even before that, like I was, I've been collecting like video content because such a huge part of EDM uh, shows is like visuals and stuff like that. And I've been like before this tour that we just started, um, I was collecting content six months ago. And then starting to put together the set and what songs flow into each other, where where I'm trying to take it dynamically, like it's all thought out and like and uh, yeah, yeah, it's just like so much preparation each day because we have um, for the first time ever out here we have like cryo, which is that smoke that shoots way up high really fast, and uh, we have like LED walls and LED uh, content in front of our our, uh, our our little like table and stuff and. Yeah, there's just so much. I have a guy out here that just like takes care of like setting all that stuff up, which is nice, and he just like he smashes it for us. So makes us look
0: good. <laughs> well, Cole, I definitely uh, appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule and uh, your tour, actually, and uh, calling us today. But uh, for those that are interested in following Capital Kings, whether it's on social media, SoundCloud, Spotify, what is the best way for them to, I guess, stay connected with you and to make sure that they hear all your new sounds?
3: Yeah, just... Uh all the major stuff, Instagram, it's Capital Kings Music, Uh, Facebook, I think it's just slash Capital Kings, um, www.capitalkingsmusic.com, it's all the main stuff, you can just Google it and you'll find us.
0: Definitely recommend following them on social media and be sure to check out Capital Kings and their new uh, single, I Can't Quit, and uh, Cole, we look forward to seeing you in Houston on uh, Thursday, August 25th, thanks again, we appreciate it. Awesome, man, thank you.
1: Closing time.
0: Again, this has been episode 55 of the Weekly Brew Podcast, and uh, thanks to Vincent Harris and Nicole from Capital Kings for joining us on this week's show, and I thought both were phenomenal guests.
1: Well, we have a history of grabbing phenomenal guests and getting the best out of them. Uh, We're sort of like a really good NBA point guard. We make everyone around us better. So another great job by us, another great show by us. Uh, Let's give ourselves a round of applause. You can hear me doing it on my mic there. That's for
0: us. And you mentioned great point guards, and I think we're like Russell Westbrook—you know, getting a three-year contract extension. I think we are that type of talent. But speaking of talent, I thought you know Vincent—he just does a remarkable job at Harris Media, and again, he's worked on some fascinating cafe, uh, some fascinating campaigns, not only here in the U.S. but abroad, and uh, just. You know, amazing discourse from him and and insight into what shapes uh, our political system right now in the United States. And uh, Cole from Capital Kings, uh, you know, just a phenomenal talent. And I look forward to seeing them as they uh, come to Houston here in just a few weeks. Definitely go check out their new single, I Can't Quit, on iTunes, on Spotify, and also check out their amazing music video, which is on YouTube right now.
1: And I think it's important. Actually, I I, I begged you for an opportunity to have sort of a disclaimer session after the Vincent Harris interview. Um, again, I don't do, I don't agree with his politics. Really, I certainly detest Donald Trump. I think that um, he is bad for this country. I think he was bad for this country before he had any sort of political power or the opportunity to gain any. I think he's just a bad influence on uh, on the media and on our country in general. But what he did say that stuck out to me was the comments about um, the way that we use social media, use the internet to educate ourselves. In the sense that uh, he, for instance, as a liberal, he named like uh, Slate, HuffPo, some some publications I read very frequently that I have liked on Facebook that show up in my feed that I tend to inundate myself with. I certainly don't go on Breitbart. I don't go on the Drudge Report, you know, these other right-leaning institutions. And so there's sort of a a natural feedback loop, um, an insidious cycle of feeding ourselves content that reinforces the positions we already have, which serves to divide us. And then you take into account the fact that you can block people on Facebook, on Twitter that you don't agree with, and you end up uh, surrounding yourself with, with thousands and thousands of people that think just like you. And so it was an interesting conversation with somebody whose politics I don't agree with um, that was enlightening. I mean, I don't think Bence is a bad guy. I think that what he wants uh, may be bad for this country, you know, from my perspective. But it was it was worthwhile to have a legitimate dialogue with someone who thinks differently. And it's something that is happening uh, less and less, I think, as we have the ability to call the people that we read and consume and sort of close ourselves off to the, uh, to the viewpoints of others.
0: Yeah, just to clarify, uh, Vincent did say that he was going to vote for Donald Trump in November, but I think it was a reluctant endorsement. Uh, Vincent, again, worked for the Rand Paul campaign uh, this past year. And uh, I think that one of the things that he said was kind of illuminating, and that was that uh, right now we don't have a legitimate third option. And of course, for me, I'm not, I'm a Republican, as most people know, but I cannot find myself uh, open to voting for Donald Trump. And I think the reason why is it comes down to uh, the lack of policy. I think the only policy that he's actually laid out is his plans to build a wall and to quote make Mexico pay for it and I just don't think that's realistic so when I look at Donald Trump I, I just see a bunch of senseless rhetoric that I cannot get behind as a Republican and when I look at Hillary Clinton you know she's labeled as a liar so unfortunately I think most people in America look at you know I've got to choose the lesser of two evils but for me uh, you know I think that we need a, a viable third-party candidate so right now I'm actually leaning toward voting for Gary Johnson in a libertarian um, party and and Governor Johnson you know was a uh, two-term Republican governor in a Democratic state in New Mexico, uh, his his vice presidential running mate was a uh, Republican governor in a you know a liberal leaning state up in the Northeast in Massachusetts. Uh, but I both I, I think that they both provide great insight and a new perspective, and I think that a lot of people in our generation want a viable third party option that kind of identifies with I don't know their own belief system. And I, I hope that, you know, I, I don't see, you know, the Libertarian Party really gaining any steam this year, but I hope that it gives us more options in 2020 and 2024 that we're not just an and or country that we can, you know, actually vote for our conscience. Yeah, and uh,
1: which, of course, is a little Ted Cruz quote there. Um, But that's good advice. Vote your conscience, which, you know, again, it could be an exciting time to push political discourse and the political narrative forward in this country, because I do think that almost everyone realizes there are severe limitations to a purely two-party system. Uh, These are the two most disliked candidates ever put up in this country, and they're running against one another. So there are a lot of people that are going to be legitimately dissatisfied. And if that's the case, then it's a good time to vote third party. It's a good time to push that forward. I don't understand exactly how it works, but if they get a certain percentage of the vote, I think there's some sort of federal funding available for them. It would be nice to see... That's correct. Yeah, it would be nice to see uh, a third party gain some steam, and if if it feels like you're going to chalk this season up as a loss if you're a Republican that would have voted Republican otherwise, then certainly great time to go. Uh, Gary Johnson is a guy that is uh, more reasonable than Trump, certainly, which is not a, a very high bar uh, to, to pass, but, uh, but but do something good for your country. Vote your conscience. Uh, in this case, maybe a third party would be the option for you, and, uh, and we could maybe gain something from what has been otherwise a nightmarish political season thus far.
0: If you would have asked me last year at this time if Kevin Cook would actually quote Ted Cruz, I wouldn't have believed it, but that's the era that we lived in right now with uh, two candidates right now that are essentially disenfranchising their own parties, and uh, it's an unfortunate situation, but uh, I, I think it's going to be a historical election in November, and honestly, I can't wait to see how everything shakes out, especially as we get closer toward the debate season, but, uh, you know, in terms of feeling confident and victorious, uh, I think it, it's, you know, a victory whenever we get a podcast review on iTunes, and Kevin, we had one of those this week. We
1: absolutely did. Uh, I am being Beyond Delighted, I'm sure you can tell in my voice it has a nice lilt to it. Uh, I'm very enthused about this review because it pushes us up to 58. We're shooting for 100 in the near future, so we're getting there bit by bit. Like I said, if you leave a review, you immediately become my favorite listener, which uh, is a tremendously valuable, intangible thing that you can carry around with you uh, for as long as you live, really. So the, the 57 people that have done this before uh, have that knowledge walking around that they were once my favorite listener. This week's review comes from the Shubes, which I actually know this person, uh, Michael Schuber, who you know as well from high school. Michael Schuber, who we both know from uh, the Woodlands High School, shout out to Michael Schuber, who I guess is a listener of this podcast, uh, delightful to know that. Um, he reached out to me and said he enjoys the content we put out and on iTunes he said great sports pod exclamation mark these guys are dope they have great local and national guests they are professional current and fun and I'm glad to add the weekly brew to my podcast queue and that is terrific praise and we appreciate it Michael Schuber our favorite listener of the week if I remembered your Twitter handle I would totally give it out I'm sorry Michael I do not but thank you for listening maybe we'll go back and do that sometime (laughs)
0: absolutely. Thanks for the iTunes review, Michael. And, uh, for those that haven't left an iTunes review yet, we've got thousands of listeners each week. And I definitely encourage that you go to iTunes and tell us what you like. Tell us what you uh, want to hear on the show, any particular guests or topics that you want us to cover. We will definitely take that into consideration. And uh, in addition to iTunes, we want to make sure that you follow our social media pages. Again, you can just search weekly brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, you can follow our website at weeklybrewcast.com. But Kevin, it's been an absolute blast uh, having you on the show this week and uh, going back and forth as a, uh, you know, kind of a solo act this week, if that makes sense. Uh, it's
1: not solo. There's two of us, but uh, I guess we own each have our own solo act uh, that's together. It's a duo, I think, is what they call that. But but yeah, it is. It's very tight, very clean. We miss uh, the people that we love very much, Dolores and Jeremy. Uh, get well soon. They're not sick, but you know, get back soon. We hope you come back soon. But otherwise, it has been a delight podcasting with you as always, Austin.
0: Yeah, we definitely uh, look forward to having Jeremy and Dolores back next week. But uh, again, thanks to our great guests this week. Thanks to Vincent Harris for joining us on the podcast, discussing uh, the political spectrum and kind of the digital media focus uh, that we can see moving up to the November election. Also, thanks to Cole from Capital Kings for joining us on uh, the podcast. And if you have not heard their new single, go ahead and check it out. It's called I Can't Quit. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. You can also check out their awesome music video, which was uh, debuted on YouTube in late July. Highly recommend you check that out. And they're also going to be in Houston at the end of the month. So go ahead and check them out online. Just search Capital Kings in Google. And uh, we had a fun episode. Again, this has been episode 55 of the Weekly Free Podcast. And for my co-host this week, Kevin Cook, I'm Austin Statton. We'll see you next week. And guys, remember, no matter who you
1: are, where you go, or what you do this week, always, always brew responsibly. You've been listening to the Weekly Brew.